Do you love to take in fiction podcasts on the way to work? Are you a writer looking to bust into the medium with your next great story? Audio dramas are one of the hottest new ways for writers and creators to share their narratives. One new podcast gives you the story behind the stories. On Soundright Spotlight Audio, storytellers share their process, history, and ideas. Whether you're looking for your next listen, or you're a writer, actor, or sound designer looking for inspiration, this show is the place for you. I'm Clayton Hester. Search for Soundright Spotlight anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Easier Said. We're here today uh, bringing you a conversation about how art interprets history. I'm Clayton. We've got Adam. We've got Nathan. We've got Brandon for you today. Uh, were you about to say something? Oh, no, oh, okay. no. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Anyway, I was just going to, to, to introduce you to the topic about, um, and this, this is also kind of a meta-history, because you're getting into the history of how history is interpreted yeah. in art. And so there's a lot there. There's a lot of opportunity uh, for conversation. And I think that one can get uh, pretty deep into it when considering um, a few things, namely Shakespeare uh, as one, um, classic cinema history as another, and other venues. What comes to mind when you hear this central question of how does art interpret history? The, the central question, what comes to my mind, is how concepts and how certain groups are often portrayed, as well as events, mm -hmm. and just the way those things can be spun in so many different ways. And I guess the main area that I go with that is cinematic. And we can get more to that later. But the Shakespeare stuff, Shakespeare and his interpretation of history are almost like almost intertwined with some of the popular conceptions of people like Julius Caesar. Right. And Bruce. yeah, and for sure, uh, Richard III. You yeah. Know, even though some people have tried to rehabilitate him. Yeah, that's yeah. Kind of a controversial one, but that really is a great example yeah. of how that art really inspired that kind of interpretation where a lot of, not most, but not all, but a lot of historians but, would, and advocates would disagree with that just right stringently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be too brutal. Like the Richard III society comes to mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's also an element to which um, certain individuals can become uh, folk heroes because of this cultural influence. And I don't know yeah. if that inspires any like examples among you, but uh, that, uh, that is one of those things as yeah. well. Um, I, I do have an example with, and this, this with that is an interesting one. Because take example Charles I who was beheaded on orders of parliament that were tried by the, I think it was the High Court of Justice was their name. Now, what you may or may not know is that in later editions of the Book of Common Prayer, he was called Charles the Martyr. He has his own collect and whatnot and stuff like that. And that greatly, as well as the period after with the Restoration, that they, they really very much shaped things. But that entire process reframes the entire issue to where you will then view the parliament with much more either skepticism or cynicism or whatever, whatever you may have it, even though it was a very complicated issue. Now... Yeah, but yeah, that, that's more so a history thing. But the Book of Common Prayer is a common thing. Obviously, it says common right. in the title. Is a thing that is embedded in the mind of mm -hmm. the English churchman who would have lived and stuff like that. Right. And the celebration celebrating a man is an act of endorsement of him. Mm -hmm. So those things, and, and the same thing can happen with regular art, to where people who were, no matter what they were at the time, can be either endeared, but more frequently hated. Mm -hmm. So uh, the question for me would be like, but the art and like how it like. History is like deep through. Um, so um, there's like a lot of people that write on things like a hundred years after it happens, you know, and they're writing based off of like what they've read, and then like a lot of them base it off of art from the current time, and then it changes it throughout the time, giving you sort of a fake notion of what happened. Like a lot of the stuff from I think it's Rome. There's some stuff over some people that are false. Um, I don't know. Where I'm going. With What's this. one you're thinking of? If I may um, ask. Well, I was gonna go with one from Scotland, but I couldn't remember what the name is. But I remember the author's name is Blind Harry, and it's over the guy that led the rebellion. Which, um, okay. I'm, give me a second, I'll look it up. There is a propaganda account, okay. When it, it's, um, from it's what, the one, which one's the one that gets executed in the, uh, Braveheart? William, William Wallace. Wallace. Yes, yes there Wallace. was a false account, and that's like the one history account that we have, and... That's what I was yeah. originally thinking of more, but I couldn't remember, I was like, I'm blanking all the day, it's like, I should know this, I even know the guy that wrote the fake account. It's like, yeah. But that sort of, like, had people's modern interpretation of what happened was based off of that false account, yeah. even though there's a few things that haven't been proven and have been debunked already. From it. Yeah, so I think you make a very good point in that. And one way that art interprets history is it applies concepts of the present mm -hmm. to things that you know, obviously shouldn't exist. And one example in Braveheart is when he's asked who he's loyal to, William Wallace, he says, I'm loyal to Scotland. I, pledge my, I have not pledged my allegiance to any king or any lord or any noble. That is not how anyone thought. 
those that that ideology did not exist. The idea of a nation, and that's what you're loyal to. I mean, you're well, loyal to your lord. Based, I guess. Yeah, or or anything like that. Well, everyone was a noble society, so you. Yeah, you definitely would pledge loyalty to the nobility. You had a lead. Whatever happens, you also your lord, like, your clan, or like your yeah. clan leader, all that. Yeah. It was an interesting thing because I was going through it on it, and it's talking about like how like people would rise up to become more powerful back in the day, and like what they did, and like what are common beliefs about this, and what's yeah. false that we can prove. And what's interesting is like whenever they were going through it in the video I was listening to, um, they mentioned that some of the documentation might have actually burned up in a fire, which I don't know if I believe it because I've read some of the account, and there's just some stuff that's obviously false. Yeah. So that sort of makes it to where the guy's not credible anymore because the guy that's writing it has obviously messed up on several crucial points. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, in the, that scheme of things, there's also an interesting level to which one uh, can talk about uh, how the, like, the, some uh, histories are also invented as far as uh, national myth. So with that, uh, kind of, I think of uh, the Aeneid in particular as well, yeah. creating a backstory, creating a history, yeah, uh, creating those sorts of things in order to give kind of a national context, and also the fact that they're inspired by the, the, the earlier Greek, like Homer. Okay, so are you saying the so Aeneid like, is not the actual history? Because, I maybe. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. That is... well, what about the Iliad and the Odyssey? I, well, since this podcast must go on, I don't want to shun the unbeliever. <laughs> it is what it is. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I am not totally convinced that uh, Rome was founded by you know demigods and uh, anything along those lines. But uh, yeah. So. Well, then you're in the minority. Rome is this. You know, historical revisionism, and uh, once once the academia gets a hold of things, actually, what, took class over Rome. What room can be left for the the fantastic after that? Point? It was an odd class over Rome. Okay. I learned a lot. So I think you make a very good point with <laughs> the mythos of a nation and stuff like that. Now, the act of creating one can be a tough process. Yeah. When we're so far removed, we see that there's one thing, but what they often call is like the epic cycle of stories yeah. with the Greeks. Now, they there's have that, and yeah. the Norse too as well. Yes. Like the Norse have their own set of more like but, their own tales that are based. Yeah, the Norse sagas. Like, but yeah. there is a deal of a historiography with that. With some, that some of them were look like they were changed. Yes. To fit a more Christian, a to fit a more Christian worldview, and that yeah. also will go on with in um, art reinterpreting history because you're looking at it through a different lens. Yeah, when the monks you write would, things down, you mm -hmm. know, it's more of a cultural history rather than actual Wait, history. Are you saying that the academics are right and the monks revise the stories? <laughs> uh, I have you, no comment on that. Okay, oh. so yeah, that was pretty rich. You telling Clayton that, <laughs> that you know the academics are I'm wrong? I'm just saying there's a better train of authorship when it comes to the Train. <clears throat> Okay. okay, wrong word to use. Continue. Anywho, with all that stuff, one example I can think of is the very conflicting or different accounts you have with the Matter of Britain, as it were, and the King Arthur myths, and the different oh, shapes yeah. those things mm -hmm. take, giving England a backstory and a history like that. Mm -hmm. Cornwall's words look at the castle, supposedly. Yeah, there's, the, well, there, yeah, there is one interpretable. Well, yeah, especially Le Morte Arthur, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, that whole sort of thing. But yes, it's a, it's a very it's a very strange thing, seeing and hearing those histories, and especially when it developed later in England, mm -hmm. which I suppose we're all... Conceive the academics now. Okay, no one, no one contends the fact that there were multiple tellings of the Arthur story, and there were even lots of contradictory things, and it was happening at different times. Yeah. So let's get out of the way. That's even that's even given by medieval accounts, so we yeah. know it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's very interesting to see how different conceptions of how a nation yeah. is developed and different aspects of the Arthurian myth that are transmitted, sure. how those things might be stressed depending mm -hmm. on both the author and what they want to communicate about the nation. And yeah, it's, it's quite true. It's interesting when uh, when C.S. Lewis has. Merlin pop up in the third of the space trilogy books. Spoiler alert! He he, he kind of just offhandedly makes Merlin have to remark that he was not actually born of a um, an incubus or anything <laughs> along those lines. It's just oh, by the way, I, my my you know my conception was not demonic. I just felt like I needed to mention that. And so it's it's interesting in which those different variations, as well as then the contention in which those elements show up in modern art, whether or not you know we reject any one revision over time. Yeah. Quite offhand comment. Now, yeah. yeah. So there's one thing that I think goes into well with all of this, and that is the idea of the Robin Hood story. Mm -hmm. The Robin Hood story starts out on a tale, a tale that the people just tell at things like celebrations and stuff about this. Mm -hmm. You have the lucky outlaw, basically, mm -hmm. who is at, at times devoted to the Virgin Mary, at times this, at times that. Loved but, by the people. Yes, but he is taken by the nobility, and they see the popularity of the story, and they make him loyal to King Richard the Lionheart. <laughs> of course, of course they have to, because you're protagonist. And then they basically elevate him to the status of nobility and all that stuff and certain other myths and, mm -hmm. well, I say retellings, just because they want to change the conception of the story. When in reality, it's just a, you know, it's just, he's really just an outlaw mm -hmm. that sometimes kills people, honestly. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes, in some stories, the end of it is him being executed. Yeah. Isn't there 
like a Mexican version of the Robin Hood story? Because I know there's like different tellings. Um, isn't there one? Isn't he named Joaquin? Yeah, there, it, I think that is his actual name. Well, has, there's an actual title about that. But yeah, yeah. I feel like I've heard I Kelly Ripa. There's a movie I think about one it. of her kids is named that, and that's the reason. There's a movie about <laughs> it. Could but... be completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, but with all this stuff, you have there are established parts of the mythos that may or may not be there at times. But for sure, Guy of Gisborne is now an established part of the mythos. You also have the Sheriff of Nottingham, now an established part of the mythos. And you could argue, if we were just going off 20th century adaptations, King Richard the Lionheart is now an established part of the mythos. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's weird how those things develop when it can just be a simple tale. And yeah, it's This one told by people and then it changes slightly over time. Yeah. And then it's converting ever. it to modern day, in which I think that we talked about this in the, the episode before on uh, different revisionisms of yeah. storytelling. Um, I mean, you mentioned, I think I mentioned Robert Hood. Sure. Example, even. I mean, you know, you bring him up in modern day, and I know that uh, things like the, the Green Arrow and uh, him being. He had quite a, a go of things in which you, you know, straight up killed people, and uh, sometimes that happens. And some different variations of him are much more Robin Hood esque. And um, in a lot of his tellings, he's a he's a symbol of progressivism because of hunting you yeah. know, for the, uh, you know, uh, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, or whatever he does. Maybe combating uh, particularly white collar criminals. I'm not exactly yeah. sure about that. Well, well the, the thing is with tales. Robin Hood is the way you have to make those tales. It's, it's generally the tale is told. Um, we a lot of our accounts are like 14th century and later. But the tale was like retroactively set in the 13th century, you know, just mm -hmm. because then you have a king who the nobles can agree with yeah. is good to rebel against, yeah. you know? You yeah. can make it pretty safe then. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the thing. So you have the peasants getting what they want and, you know, they're, they're you know, have a guy that robs people and he's good because the king's not just and the real king's away and stuff like that. Okay. Robin Hood versus William Tell. I don't think William Tell is subject to as much revision as Robin Hood just because it's not as popular a story. That's true. But I would say William Tell definitely has a lot of political, I mean, cultural yeah, overtones to it. Definitely the socio-political stuff going on there. Who would win? In a battle. <laughs> yeah. In a battle. The in the epic victory royale. <laughs> Robin Hood epic versus William Tell. The epic rap battle of history. Robin Hood versus William Tell. I feel like that could be a thing. You're really here first. Anyway, uh, if ERB does that, they, they need to, to let yeah. us know. Um, so what is actually, I thought it was always pronounced ERB. ERB? It's ERB. Oh, well, that's how my phone pronounces it. Well, <laughs> it does read it to you. I mean, it does, and it reads it as ERB. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I learned something new today. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> anywho, uh, I think that that is also an important, uh, an interesting uh, way of uh, seeing that for sure, as well as just kind of looking back at, um, I think, some of our uh, national, um, well, in our own uh, history as well, in, in terms of uh, bringing back um, different stories in early cinema, I think for sure, heroic tales and adapting the Odyssey, adapting different versions of... Uh, these sword and sandal epic type things, and you know, mentioned in prior ones, um, and then then bringing them back to life, in which you know they they have multiple conceptions. Um, can a, can a movie like that? Uh, do you think, as an art, be more than just a movie based on a prior work? Do you think that it has its own entity as much in in the sense that it is like a couple of steps away from history? In a sense, I guess you know you could be particularly looking at the history of it. If that makes sense. Are you saying like a modern reinterpretation of something that yeah. was made? Um, I mean, it has to have its basis in something. Like, it has to be well, using something to build up from. I'm saying it's basically, you know, when it, when it comes to um, basing something at, like, you know, on the Odyssey mm -hmm. and uh, then that being based on, you know, mass. Yeah. 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 You know, having a couple of filters there. Because it's further back from the original. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that. Like having um, Limor de Arthur as being like your basis for your mm -hmm. Arthur tale, even though there are other Arthurian legends that are before mm -hmm. and after and surrounding. Mm -hmm. But yeah, viewing that lens, I, I think that's useful. Mm -hmm. I think that can do things. I, I People say that gets stale, mm -hmm. but I, I honestly don't, don't necessarily we, see it. Should we be more open to treating the endless King Arthur and Robin Hood movies as then also something that we should accept? It's just the fact that uh, as there were multiple legends, so there are multiple remakes of this, this tale. Yeah, I, I get that. I, there are, yeah, you can accept there are quite a lot of remakes and legends. I, I like to stick to the Minotites version. That's a, that, is, that is pretty much the most... That is the canon, canon, definitive canon, canon, you know, canon version, yes. <laughs> definitive version, um, including you know all of the self-references at the end. It's always interesting how Mel Brooks movies need to break down by the end. I guess that um, one of the... I think he just gets tired of making a movie at that point. <laughs> like, I don't know how to end it. <laughs> Not that they're necessarily filmed in order, but he's like, that's conceptually yeah. how yeah. I do it. It's like, the end would have to be too serious in terms of uh, how to make it, or, you know, they can't be, like, just, you know, happy. They have to be in some sort of surreal sense of happiness where they, they ride off in a limo together into the sunset or, or things like that. Um, I guess uh, Young Frankenstein didn't do that as much. Frankenstein? Well, that's that's the joke. In I, know, yeah. I know. I mm know. -hmm. 
So you're just gonna go out of your way to mispronounce this man's name. He's an academic. He reserves some damn respect. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and then I don't think they they did it in Spaceballs, didn't they? they but it, to a lesser extent. Anyway, I mean that one had a lot more breakdown towards the middle with the the reshowing of the movie inside the movie. But, I actually yeah. have not listened to that. And of course, Blazing Saddles also has right. Yeah. yeah, the limo thing. Yeah. They um, also show the movie inside the movie. Yeah, that's true. Movie, you know. Yeah, but they show the ending of the movie that is not seen inside the movie. Yeah. In the movie theater. So what's the real ending of the movie? <laughs> I don't I think, think the ending of the you movie. can understand this, but okay. Because it's a movie about them, and they are in character still. You have to have a extra human intelligence to understand that. Yeah. It was made for the aliens, not for us. Huh. Okay. Good well, point. in any case, moving on with your idea of adaptations through lenses, <laughs> right? I, I think it can be helpful, but... The idea that, okay, so are you, I feel like where we're going is like, is it ever fair to criticize something as not being part of things if the main thing is to innovate what you already have or to add something new to it? I honestly don't know. I think there might be, I think there might be some parts of the Robin Hood legend that, okay, I feel like particularly making Robin Hood a noble back when that was being done was a bad decision. I think that was very poor considering the fact that that was done at Mayday Blaze and stuff like that. I think making him a noble was a bad part, but that's not our fault. We live in the modern era. That's their fault. <laughs> if we do it, it can still be our fault. But, I mean, know, I don't... Making him fighting in the Third Crusade, I don't see the point. I really don't. It's like trying to make him more noble, a Christian knight, and this and that. It's like, yeah. he robs people, okay? <laughs> he kills people it's sometimes. But he, but he does not kill clergy because he is devoted to the Blessed Virgin. Mm -hmm. I and mean, subtails. <laughs> it's like... Mm -hmm. I was going to ask a question about... Like, histories that are told from person to person, like the verbal histories that some people have. Like, yeah, that becomes, the, that's pretty much inevitably going to, you know, That always changes over time because alter. it's just, every person that tells it, tells it might be slightly different, like a detail here. Yeah. A detail well, I'm not sure I've ever heard a conquistador's report that's ever been wrong. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, have you, uh, do you think that the noble version of Robin Hood resonates in a sense more because of our interest in modern day with um, folks like the, the Buddha who goes from... Being a noble Prince. towards being a commoner. I, I don't think it's the same. Purpose. I, don't I, don't like it. I don't think it's the same thing. Well, I, in terms of pursuing his purpose, in a sense. Okay, I, I, see, I see that. I oh, see that. Yeah. Okay, a lot Maybe of you're applying the, yeah. uh, the bad Buddha's motivation, which maybe tries to get in touch with the common people more, which I think movie producers kind of might sympathize with because they're, they're not the common people. They're trying to influence the common yeah. people. So here, here's the thing with that. One of the reasons why the plays took on the noble aspect is because frequently when, when the media became you know, very much mainstream in the sense that it was done at theaters and stuff like that, noble protagonists became the norm. Mm -hmm. it, it follows that the Robin Hood tale would follow suit. Mm -hmm. So like you have, I think of Shakespeare plays, it's, it's, very, it's relatively rare that you see someone who's a commoner being the main role because they're insignificant mm -hmm. by nature. Like you can argue that, that would be the, that's what the people want to do because art is meant to um, enforce the norm. You can argue this, you can argue that. But the thing is, I think is different with a noble Robin Hood mm -hmm. is Robin Hood is, he doesn't reject the noble life so much as he lives in the way that he needs to live. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, you, you know what I mean. It's yeah. Just, yeah, but I understand what you mean though. Moving a bit to um, how art can interpret history, particularly in a specific uh, moment of time. Uh, are you familiar with the art of liberty leading the people by Eugene Delacroix? The painting. Oh, with that the one. woman. Oh, yes. The yeah, yeah. Yeah. yes. Yeah, the French exposed. Revolution painting. Okay. Yeah, and so in the yeah. 1830s, in which, uh, yeah, bringing up the, the virtue of the so-called Republic of Virtue, uh, in order for <laughs> there to, to, to harken back to this message, embodying liberty is this woman um, who is you know, leading the people. Uh, and so, there, yeah, there are a lot of um, cultural like reinterpretive ideas and paintings. Like yeah. A lot of the paintings in early America that were done later by the French have a lot of subtext, subtext to them, yeah. such as Washington crossing the Delaware. That's a yeah. pretty notable one about who's all in the boat in the Delaware. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There are reasons for that, why there is an African-American in the boat. That's, mm -hmm. that's a political subtext at the time. Interesting. Yeah. So with what you've said, I feel like we have seen... Now, take an example that could be seen as similar in some ways to that, to that event. Mm -hmm. but they did not have as much academic backing, but the German Peasants War, you know, 15, mm -hmm. you know, teens and 20s and stuff like that. Well, more so 20s. And you also had the Knights Revolt before that, both relatively similar things where, where people wanted different privileges. But because of the framing of the context that all the people were writing about at the time of the Peasants' War and the fact that the Peasants' War failed, mm -hmm. it's remembered as a horribly violent affair, that this and that, when in reality, 
Martin Luther, who condemned the thing, said some of their demands were just, and he he really did flip flops on that. Like it was it was you know terrible on, on his part when it came to that. But you know it's one of those things. Had they won and attained rights and been sort of a sort of Hussite-ish thing that happened that didn't go too off the rails, mm -hmm. I feel like we would sell. There would be much more liberty art painted around that. Mm -hmm. You know, not just weird anarcho-communist memes. <laughs> you know, I, it's one of those things. Mm -hmm. But the you know French Revolution often had context of liberty, even if. We recognize it was a very bloody affair. Yeah, it's n things like peasants' revolts, things that fail, mm -hmm. never get that sort of recognition, never gets that, that sort of positive view. Yeah, if French Revolution hadn't have won, there wouldn't have been liberty leading the people. It would just been a bunch of angry people. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. yes, that is true. Mm -hmm. You might have Joan of Arc leading the uh, reactionary forces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would it would have been something like that, like just putting down a rebellion that was killing the lives of countless Frenchmen because of this and that. And it's like, yeah. yeah, it's all how you frame it. I don't know, guys. If you, I don't know if everybody knows this, but the French Revolution was bad. That feel, I don't know if that needs to be said, but I feel like it might be. I feel like it might be. They went a bit over the edge. Yeah. Well, I, I don't... Okay. Some, I don't mean to say bad. this. I don't mean to... I'm not endorsing the French Revolution. <laughs> Specifically because it would put me in line with Thomas Jefferson on the issue. Not oh. that I don't like the guy, but he had some bad takes on that. So He did. He made some bad decisions. Yeah, he made some bad decisions. Bad calls. So, with that stuff, what do you do with the estates, then? With the way France functions? I don't know, but I don't. I don't think mass murder is really a good thing. Yeah, usually you don't mean go out and war. Team. Okay, <laughs> so no guillotine. So, are, do you oppose the revolution in general, the idea of waging a war to give more privileges to a certain class of people, I, or do you oppose how it was done? I think because this would. You can oppose both and still be a decent person. I think this would like show my political leanings too much if I were to answer honestly. Okay. I think that reign of reigns of terror are you know reigns of terror for a reason. <laughs> well, it's called that. Didn't he end up getting his head chopped off too? Ropes Peter, Ropes Peter. Yeah. Didn't he try yeah. to shoot himself, dude? It's like, yeah, he broke his jaw, I think. Yeah, he, he tried to shoot jaw. himself before they cut off his head. Yeah, yeah. and then there's the death of Marat, which is a famous painting. Yeah, there's a mm -hmm. wait, like he, that. was he the one stabbed in the bath? Yeah, yep. the yep. one woman stabbed. Also, Louis Danton was so with all that. 18. So, but here's the thing: German peasants were. We all agree. Well, uh, most of us agree that a lot of the demands of the peasants were somewhat just in the fact that they said they should not be bound to the land. Things like that, and they should be able to use common land that is said to be common. That's perfectly legal. Now, what they did was wage a war against, you know, mm -hmm. the powers that be. Mm -hmm. you, you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of people nowadays that would say that in itself is wrong. Mm -hmm. And with the French Revolution, I think you can make that case. Obviously, went too far off the rails, did a lot of bad stuff, I specifically think, the city of Paris. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I wouldn't say that the revolution in itself is bad. A lot of the ideas behind it are, but the ideas in the peasants were. We're also not the same. It's, just, it's messy. I would also say, like, in most conflicts, it's a bit more complicated. It really is. It, there was a lot of different shades of how peasant life happened in France. Yeah. Especially outside of Paris. And also That's the true. general intellectual scene of Paris as well. Yeah. It was very different from... Yeah, yeah there like, wasn't a big intellectual basis behind the peasants' war in Germany. That is correct. Is that sort of, like, with every revolt, like, you know, the cities react differently than the... Yeah, and it always a lot depends on the leadership because leadership in the French Revolution was very much intellectual and deep in thought mm -hmm. of what a government should be, and we're quite thorough in the, that regard. They had several things that they wrote on it at the time. Oh, I took quite. A, I took a class over the French Revolution actually, mm -hmm. and it was interesting. Was it my favorite because it was French Revolution and Napoleon? That was the name of it. It's like mm -hmm. French Revolution and Napoleonic Era of France. It's like, that guess, sounds incredibly interesting, honestly. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't the worst class I've been in, and there were parts that were really good, and there were parts that I didn't enjoy as much. There's quite a lot, you know, I think that uh, isolating into separate, well, I mean, nobody's got time for that, but isolating the separate classes, the many stages of it, mm -hmm. from uh, uh, Robespierre to and the director, well, not direct, directly the director, the director is in there, the director is in there. Uh, eventually to Napoleon, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah. would I be correct in saying that our favorite stage here is Napoleon? Um, I'm the only one. There's, I'm, he, he I'm did, willing to say he that. did accomplish a decent. There's race, something though. interesting about Robespierre, despite being corrupt. Napoleon, he's the hero of the republic. Oh yeah, he, a he, nation yes. beset on all sides. He came yes, in and he's is. like, I'm going to fight. Yes, play. he's also corrupt. You can <laughs> lie. Both. Lots of people are. <laughs> <trying>. I know. <laughs> I, I'm just. I'm just pointing at the fact. When did he lie? Uh, well, there's several things. When about he lied to his co-conspirator about the coup. That's number well, one. Well, yeah, that's just what you do. Wait, well, I mean, number that's how, that's how you number two, when he lied to his men in Egypt, they wouldn't leave him. That's number two. Well, I mean, <laughs> you only do all that. Yeah, Napoleon's probably the highlight. Oh, yeah, is. definitely. Yeah. Now, uh, let's. that moves us to depictions of people like Napoleon. Uh, oh, how are they depicted yes. through art? I would say it depends on the person. It either makes them bigger than they actually were like in life. Like, you know, I guess it's cliche. In this case, it made them smaller. Yeah, because you know, the British propaganda really did, oh, yeah. did win out against Napoleon. Yeah, in every sense, they just picked him as a monster. Wasn't he yeah. actually? He wasn't. Yes, don't get me wrong. He did a lot of bad things. Like 
his campaign in Egypt was he literally every group he met he lied to them. Like he met with several Christian representatives, lied to them. He met with several Muslim representatives, said very favorable things, went back on that, lied to them. Every little group that he met with eventually turned against him because he lied to them. Okay, I thought you were going to say something about the Peninsular War. Oh, that's that's. Uh, <laughs> I thought that's where you're going. It's like that's what I'm thinking. Okay, that yeah, it's. But don't get me wrong. If Napoleon really didn't create much glory for France. Okay. There's one thing I learned. He destroyed the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, yes. Also, I learned one thing though: never invade Russia during the winter. I think the Mongols yeah. did. They did it successfully. I think the Mongols were winning. Actually, I are they several times? Actually, are they the only? The no, Mongols are technically no, It's not. It's just remembering that you have to supply an army for vast distances with bad logistical... I guess that is 50-50. With bad logistics. Okay, there's only two things people can think of. That's, hey, World War II, when they got to Stalingrad, things started turning around. I guess that means you don't invade Russia. And Napoleon. And in World War One, the Germans did yes. beat Russia. They got oh, to the sign the, like, like the pathetic peace treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Yeah, which was yeah. Yeah. It's humiliating. I mean, well, I don't know where this... It's basically a myth. You no, know? It's, it's a myth, war. yeah. Don't wrong, logistics are a big problem in winter and in spring and, the and fall yeah. in, in Russia. Always remember, send plenty of food, plenty of winter clothing, and plenty of ammunition. But this brings us to back to the matter of nations, because mm -hmm. listen to the 1812 overture, right? Ah. Yes, quite beautiful. The triumph of Russia, which is just the gradual defeat of Napoleon, right? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> Pretty got much. things like the Battle of Borodino and stuff like that, and the, Russia, and the Russians are depicting this, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, this is beautiful, we're beating them. It's like, not really, they just don't have supply lines. It's like... It's like heroic victory. It's like, well, truthfully, most of the battles are sometimes are pretty equal, but yeah. oh, it's like one of those things. <laughs> so I think one other thing as far as the art of the uh, the French Revolution, um, you may know the the painting, the oath of uh, Horatian, uh, uh, Horatian, you know, what's names and stuff. Uh, it's uh, got everybody reaching for the swords. It's basically where the young men are. They're distributing swords, um, and um, so it's basically hearkening back. Oh, yeah. the, the tennis, it also doesn't lead to the tennis court oath. Like, well, that doesn't have those shades of meaning. I think it's connected to that. Because, I, well, I think that it's also uh, just a case in which... Oh, oh yeah. that one, that one. I think it's also just a case in which um, one could think of it as also hearkening back to the Greco-Roman ideals in which... Well, the Greek ideas in which, uh, you know, the American Revolution, Enlightenment is hearkening back to in terms of republicanism, uh, democracy... Uh, those those good good vibes in terms of uh, just thinking well and specifically duty I guess in this sense mm -hmm. um, and so there's kind of a stew there in yeah, which... yeah. So not to flip it on its head but every but republic it, becomes a joke not to flip it on its head but what about history interpreting art like one painting that comes to mind is a painting I have in my my room called the fate of the animals by Franz Mark that was painted in 1913 yeah you interrupted what I was I know I did it. It's all right. I was gonna yeah. but it's a, it's a it's lovely German expressionist painting of conflict and death of animals. And yeah, later in history, that was interpreted as the war was coming, and he, Franz Mark himself, viewed it as a premonition of the war after, during the, when the war happened, of course. Hey, actually, it's bring it to what I wanted to discuss. Yeah. Um, I was going to discuss so, World War I. Originally, it was a painting just about animals and conflict, but it became about the First World War. Were, were you going to talk about how like, the, the World War has induced utter meaninglessness in well, art? Well, I was going to say, like, how, like, satisfaction, people, Especially the First like, World War, I'd say. Yeah, I was going to discuss oh, like, how goodness. people viewed it, like the interpretation behind it. Like, you know, like there's the Great War. Mm -hmm. yeah. as so, same. Brandon, would you say the Great War is the most pointless conflict in human history? It's up there. Yeah. It's up there. You know <laughs> what? You know what? It's like. It's up there. I'm sure Clans has been shot. It's like, let's go to war, boys! It could have been just the local Balkan issue. Oh, and it just blew out of hand. But yeah. Yes. It was not good. A lot of people. A lot of people made a lot of mistakes. There were mistakes were made, is what they would say in Call of Duty. Just mistakes, mistakes were made everywhere on the battlefield, before the everywhere, battle, in before peace the battle, talks. No peace one, time, no one was... would ever use a machine gun to kill other people when it's the most effective weapon. I think the only major war, you know, that had happened since Napoleon on error was the Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, that you was know? fairly quick. There, yeah, and there was like a couple minor yeah, conflicts. Few, like there was like little Balkan incidents. Yeah, and some other minor wars. I do feel like this is getting us into an interesting area of the question of propaganda. I think you're oh, right. right. I think so. Propaganda is fine. Defeat the Hun. And I'm not talking about Mulan. I'm talking about American World War, World War propaganda. Well, 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 is, that phrase is still used in a lot of people. Yeah. To use that phrase, even of German descent to use that phrase. Yeah. Which is, I find quite weird. It's weird. Disturbing. When yeah. I hear somebody, oh, my son's going to go off to defeat the Hun. Well, your last name is Rickenbacker. Okay. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's always interesting looking at old propaganda because you can really smell the must. You yeah. know, especially whenever causes didn't work out and things didn't work quite right. You know, those. It's a, 
the weird thing with propaganda is it's open to your own interpretation overall, like going through it, like on some things. Is it? Because I Sometimes. feel like propaganda is is recognizable because it's, of how close the art is in proximity to the meaning behind yeah. it. It is, but subtext on it. Put yeah. together. Yeah. The subtext is, you know, maybe poking through. Maybe it's since I can't and, see, uh, you know, it's like. That could be. You know. It's like, hey, interpret this real quick. It's like, well, I don't have context clues. I'll interpret it for you. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Um, that person's holding a red balloon. Yeah. Like, um, nuclear war. Yeah, there you go. That 99 red balloons. 99 red balloons definitely uh, has, has... I don't know if that would be propaganda per se. I well, think, no, no, I don't. I think folks these days, I think we could be much more um, free... With, not, I wasn't going to use the word liberal because I feel like that gets into it. Just, I mean, yeah. you don't want to use a charged word in a charged context of propaganda as is. Yeah. But more freely distributing with what we call propaganda. Yeah. Do you think explicit propaganda is less harmful than implicit propaganda? Oh, yes. Yeah. I would think yeah. that very much so because... Uh, at my grandmother's house, she always had, I don't remember being there because it was before my time, she always had a sign that says, loose lips, sink ships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> period. From the period, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. True words have never been spoken. Loose lips, yes. sink ships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's one of those things. But, okay, so, propaganda can become art, though. I just, it, like, it, like, there's one, it's, it's actually, okay, people think this is just like a random stereotypical British guy. It's actually Lord Kitchener that says, like, Britain wants you. You know? He's yes. like stereotypical, you know, British gentleman with the mustache. It's like, <laughs> he's real. That's Lord Kitchener. That's yeah. the, I think he was like the head of the army or... Well, I think uh, Lord of the Admiralty. Yeah, Lord of the Admiralty. Or something like Lord that. I believe it's, um, isn't, have you heard of the movie The Battleship Patinkin, I think? It, because it has become oh, iconic for communism. Yeah, and the, the, there's like the oh. stroller rolling down the staircase. And I've never seen the movie, but I know attention. about the right. incident on the Patinkin. And so it really, it really has become iconic for that sense, um, you know, outside of per se the meaning. Um, you know, I think that I think that we could also think about um, things like the "We Can Do It" posters, which you know, they. I think that um, these days, as far as empowerment, they are much more personalized in, in that sense. Yeah. Um, but Nike just do it. <laughs> that it. Just. So here's it. the question: Is marketing propaganda? Yes. Yeah. Of course. Just do it. Can corporations make art? Oh, oh. wait a second. What did I just ask? What did you just ask? <laughs> you like, just... well, you believe in movies, right? That's, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, that's called... Yeah, this is a great question. If patrons can make art, then just broadening the process, you yeah. know? I feel like, I don't know if this is the time or place to talk about the, the patronized culture that we have uh, entered, but... Uh... So, are you, are you saying what I think you're saying? In that if we had true communism, and everyone were able to, you know, freely <laughs> explore their own expressive capabilities, we'd have better the, art. The starving artists would not be starving if there were, you know, more uh, food. Distributed directly to them, and they were working for the state. They wouldn't. They wouldn't have writers. Wait, wait. What's this about a state? I said communism. Ooh. You can have a socialist state. Let's let's not get into the esoterics oh. of Marxism. <laughs> what just happened? You immediately. Ooh, that's from propaganda, isn't it? Communism, <laughs> state. I said, oh, what just happened? The state does things from communism. <laughs> hey, what just happened? I understand what you mean, but do you think that basically taking away more so corporate control, however you would do that, would lead to? Better art. I wouldn't say more creative because probably that would is be, the question. But that's the question. That better. is the main because question. that's the only question I'm interested. In. It's so much. Better. All art does become a matter of collaboration. Um, you know, even whether you know you've got to work with actors if you're a movie maker, uh, you've got to work with editors if you're a book writer, presumably. Yeah. And you know, unless you're self-published, in which case you can. That's fine. I think yeah. that. I think even then you could get into this kind of philosophical realm of you've got to collaborate with your readers in that sense. And I think I think that that is true to yeah. an extent because that's why you. Be clear about things, or what's you know, become you leave something to interpretation. Yeah, what's interesting? That's is, very specific. Uh, what's interesting is understanding your reader is actually yeah. very yeah, understanding, knowing your audience. It's what yeah. you really need. That is, that is, I think, a form of collaboration, it which is. our creator economy has to understand these which things. Which is, which well. is perhaps why I perhaps shouldn't, you know, go on a defensive Marxism or anything. <laughs> Not that I would or uh, did. I'm just saying. Let's right. be clear. Yeah. Let's be clear. I would be clear. Yeah. Well, let be clear. You know that sort of thing. Yeah. And be clear. Yeah. But yeah, I understand what you mean by that. Brandon, did you have something? Oh no, I'm done with this one. Done I got it sort of on this. I, um, I don't know if you necessarily did, but yes. I guess in this direction. Let's go back to propaganda in general. Now, propaganda as art. Now, what is a notable piece of propaganda? Okay, we think of stuff from World War One and World War Two. Mm-hmm. Those are the like, best. Keep calm uh, and carry on. Loose lips sink ships. Britain wants you. If you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. Wait, what's what? that one? <laughs> That's the, like, the gas shortage. Car pulling one. Gas. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you, you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. <laughs> Yeah. What's, yeah. The, what's the one with the... Wow. Why, why don't we have that bumper sticker? It's the, it's the Rosie the Riveter poster. Yeah, Rosie the Riveter. Like, is that just what it said on it? Yeah, I can't remember. It didn't no. say Rosie the Riveter. It didn't. Well, it, it, it showed it, right? pictures, yeah. it, like, it showed pictures on it and there was words that I couldn't read because I can't really see them. So, I mean... Mm-hmm. Oh. 
And uh, then there were a bunch of ones about the Japanese that, you know, those are I feel like we couldn't really talk about. Yeah, no, yeah. let's not They were also trying to make light of Hitler because he was a vegetarian, things like that, you know. I don't know if that came up so much in propaganda. I've, I've seen specific art pieces, that okay. it, but I, I don't know what they were called. Yeah. So. That's the, that's the thing. It just came up. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, at, at that point, it may just be an individual's art piece. It might be, the, that might be the thing. Could we interpret it as um, a matter of how far art sits away from its meaning, in which case, you know, down here, when the meaning is far away, that's Dadaism. Da when it's close together, when it's so close together, that's propaganda. So, so yes. propaganda remains art, but at the same time is so much more closer to it, the explicitness about what it's trying what it's to about. I like what you're saying, but I think our listeners don't like the hand motions. I mean, I gotta speak with my hands. I can't even see. Not because I'm Italian, but because I have eaten so much Italian. I think it has rubbed off on me. In, in the same sense that I have not ruined a shirt with tomato sauce rubbed off on me. The point being is that uh, I think that I think when it comes to propaganda, man, what, what are there any are there any examples today that we would look back on as uh, being about being propaganda uh, after the fact? Every single U.S. Army recruitment ad, pretty much, um, pretty much. But don't we already view those as propaganda now? Well, I mean, they're, they're meant to be. You yeah. know, they're meant to want you to become either a member of the army. Yeah. Or, I think the one that comes to mind for me is the army reserve ones that are sort mm -hmm. of going on more. Yeah. Where it's like they show you someone that's sort of like 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 you, mm -hmm. maybe like a little bit of a different background, but it's yeah. like to try and get you more interested and become. Uh, army reserve member i've not seen anybody like me they usually don't look like total dorks yeah, yeah I believe, usually they're not yeah. blind either but i think the cia did something like that recently yeah. really <laughs> yes yes they did it did was they look like total dorks no they, they did look not like me. man we can't say but with, with all that okay does the location of propaganda impact whether or not it's propaganda because an example i can think of is when the u.s army had its own twitch channel and we all know video games especially in the u.s oh, the most yeah. common genre the first person shooter yes. call of duty is what you have now is the army trying to cash in on that a little bit? <laughs> did, they, did it get taken down, if I remember correctly? Um, it was criticized, I know that. I don't know if it was taken down. I thought it was, yeah. but it might not. I'm not sure. There's a like post down here on the corner that has uh, a sticker of Big Brother's face on it saying that he's watching you. And so I, you kind of wonder about... Um, there's kind of a mimetic quality in which you can flip these propaganda... These ex the, you flip the explicitness of it yeah. in order to make a point about a real-life thing going on when taking yeah. a piece of art like that. Would you like to discuss so, the 1920s through Gatsby? Well, well <laughs> let me just say one, one more thing. So does the fact that, okay, let's say the propaganda is not that explicit on the U.S. Army thing. Sure. Does the fact that it's taking place in an area where you're seeing a bunch of first-person shooters that are about the military, does that then make it propaganda? I think, it wouldn't be before. I would say sort of because it's making you like, oh, look at what you can do. Yeah, I would say yes, propaganda, whether it's effective or not, Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Now, I would say one thing that's effective, but it wasn't, but not for its purpose. I would say movies like Full Metal Jacket, whose yeah. the purpose of it is kind of almost anti-war, and I think Hubert Chisholm, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But if you look at its effect, a lot of people who I know have gone in the military have great fondness for the film. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's weird. inspired some people. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it's, <laughs> it's meant to tell you how how horribly um, like how it's bad. It's meant it's to tell bad. you it's bad. It's meant to tell you it's bad. But there is a, is a, a appeal to it, an appeal to it. I will I'll say, I will admit that freely. Mash has not inspired me to become a an army doctor. Well, that's yeah, the purpose. They, they also were the purpose of Mash is yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. That's yeah. the purpose of Mash. Yeah, exactly. That's and, and they, they also every time they talk about war, just insert the word Vietnam there. Vietnam, and that's that's the message. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. It, is, it is an interesting. It's an interesting show for sure. It is, yeah. Uh, they even go out of the way to I mention the French conflict in Vietnam in, in, in Indochina in French Indochina. Yep. You know, it's like wow. Okay. This is subtle. No, it's not subtle. And honestly, <laughs> Hawkeye, you, you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm agreeing with you. All right, no. so, uh, gentlemen. The Hawkeye constantly is constantly oh, yeah. anti-war, which I, I'm okay with, but it's, it's just over, over the top sometimes. The thing yeah. about it is, is which that makes sense why they say it. It's very hard to maneuver the engine of a show like that whenever the protagonist is constantly vindicated as well. Like, whenever their core beliefs are something they, they hold and they keep holding them and the conflict is, basically proves that their point of view is correct, you know, that's not the purpose of every episode, yeah. but, yeah. you know, those things being there. Hawkeye's general theme, okay, it's really difficult to not vindicate the theme, war sucks. Um, <laughs> I understand there are more things to it. That's, that's a know? really easy theme to vindicate yeah. with yeah. factual so, evidence. I mean, it's really easy. Yeah. So, um, really, I understand what you mean. So, though. Gatsby in the 1920s. Yeah. Do, do you want to discuss that? Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead. So, I was doing some research on F. Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote Gatsby, and <laughs> going through his life, you know, like, what type of life he lived. And I found it interesting because I've read Gatsby twice. Once for school and then once just, you know, I was bored and it's like, you know what, it's right here. For business and pleasure. <laughs> it was just there. Um, so I read through it and 
the YouTube video that I was watching was discussing like how it's interpreting the 1920s in like that era sort of like you're like the partying and all that and then what happened afterwards. So what do you think about it? Like the sign pointing, all that. Um, I forget what the signs actually have. It's like Robert. Yeah, the glasses. Yeah, it's the um, doctor. The eyes. Well, the, the struggle about old money and new money, and new money basically being so volatile and not knowing what to do and the status of everything changing. I think, what's that other book? The Outsiders, where you have the oh, racers yeah. and all that stuff. I think, mm. I think those are very timeless themes in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, just how everything's so fragile, both human life and the societies we build. And yeah. Can we tend to overemphasize the, the context of certain things whenever... I'm thinking maybe of... Um, uh, like Dorian Gray or something along those lines. Oh, interpreting a book. When it comes or... to vanity, when thinking of uh, Dorian Gray's individual vanity, possibly thinking about, you know, if that is a commentary on, you know, the Victorian uh, sort of things going on and that sort of aesthetic. Um, it may be, do, do you think that we may overestimate um, the context whenever an author is getting at individual vices and basically making that the inherent quality is that this person is a product of their time when maybe the author is not thinking about stepping out of their own yeah. time and we might be basically also standing outside of time. So we're like, we're, they're looking at it from the same perspective as us when in fact the author may not be, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. Um, sure. Uh, I, think, I think there is something to that that could be gotten at um, in so, terms of... Yeah, so with all that, and this is just a general, general thing. So noticing things like the Victorian era and writing... We very generally see things like when the empire is at its height, when the empire is rising, we see either great areas of exploration sure. of the concepts of the self or our degradation of the concepts of the self. Yeah. It's very weird to see. And mm -hmm. in the past, we, we see history in one lens. When you see the period of the restoration, which is generally seen as good, I know we might have some you know, protectorate fans out there. I'm with you. But, you know, <laughs> only, only slightly. Only for the memes. <laughs> Mostly for the memes. And what Most it is memes. is, yeah, so what it is is when we see like these great periods of like Augustus, this great time. That's when we actually have the Aeneid being more or less codified, you know, and it's like mm -hmm. this triumph of Rome and how it's founded and stuff like that. And you, you see like very similar things with other accounts. But when you get to the Victorian era and when you have much broader literacy, you see much more exploration of themes. You would expect things to be extremely uplifting in the Victorian era, era if you were looking at the expansion of the empire and the level of just... Well, yes, British Empire did a lot of bad stuff. The level of expansion of quality of lives increasing so rapidly with industrialization, yes, there are problems, mm -hmm. but you see much more despair, much more human aspects to all of it. It's just, it's a very, it's very interesting to see how things, when they generally get better, people both despair and rejoice. It, yeah, yeah, and I think culture. a part of, a part of that, what you touched on earlier, is the increase in literacy. Yeah. Which, before, you wouldn't have people with in poor situations complaining. Now, you get that in written form, which stays around after yeah. the fact. Which is kind of sad, kind of not, but yeah. Well, before you just got your average, your odd peasant revolt here and there, and then people said, oh, I guess that's just what happens, you know? So, um, what about the, this is a bit different topic, but the Upton Sinclair of the Jungle about the yeah. crossing? Oh, yeah. Crossing industry. I think that ties into the whole, yeah. how writings and art kind of interpret things. Because yeah. is, it is a, if I'm not mistaken, a fiction book, correct? I think it actually uh, is it's about based off place. of the I know it's based off actual stuff, but it doesn't like, take it, it in a story form. It's probably fictionalized. A I could bit be wrong. I, 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 I've only read a little bit of it, and I wasn't that much. I've never read it, but I've heard about it. So with with, with all that though, you see, but by his, the numbers, purpose, everything's better. Yeah, by the numbers, everything's better. And his purpose was to really talk about the terrible conditions these yeah. workers were facing. But what people heard was a terrible meat they're eating. Yeah, because yeah. isn't it like human, like if someone gets their finger cut off, like I meant to strike them in their hearts, but I hit them in their stomachs. Yeah, it's like that's pretty bad. Which, I mean, it was pretty bad, but mm -hmm. uh, that's the year of war. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, and, and that, because, yeah, there's still the human aspects of everything, even if, yeah, by the numbers, things are better and stuff like that. It's just, it is considered a novel, so, I mean, it is considered as, a novel. Oh, yeah, okay. turning it into a narrative form, but representing, you know. Yeah, representing facts. Because yeah, he was actually novel. there. Right. If I remember correctly. Because like, he was, his, his trade was journalism, so. Yeah, he was a yeah. novel. Yeah. A but with, with all that, and I don't want to get too controversial here, but you have the idealizations of the antebellum South, you know, and you have people right. pining for that throughout the 19th century and even into the early 20th century. Gone with the wind. Yeah, gone with right. the wind. But by the numbers, the average Southern worker, his, his condition is increasing. Now, what I think really impacted things going forward was things like the urbanization and the, um, when people from the, in, the, in the South were flying from rural places to urban centers. Third I think that is what caused a lot of the pining in, in some of the later stuff, especially in the 30s. Like yeah. the Great Migration? Um, in some of it. Are you saying like the Great Migration? No, um, that, that's, that's not the same. Well, but I, I mean the more so general trend that was happening in times of great economic stress. I got you. I understand that. But 
Would you, you say see, that would lead to more idealization of the past? It would definitely, but I think that time, just because of the amount of time there, they had economic problems. Yeah, I think the amount of time that was like the reconstruction. Yeah, the amount of time that that went on really contributed to that. But urbanization in the South is is much more recent than yes, it, it is, is. In everywhere else. Yeah, in the USA. But the abolition of the plantation system was very beneficial for the Southern worker in many ways. Yes, it, it, it yeah. benefited everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's a that, weird system because actually took a class over peculiar that. institution, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, and um, looking at how folks like the infamous um, D.W. Griffith—well, yeah, I guess you could call him infamous overall, as as well as um, um, his great uh, the movie, his innovative movie um, about um, that uh, was innovative for cinema, but uh, bad for the country, oh, yeah. the nation. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, you, there has been studies done as far as connecting the uh, amount of like acts of hate and things being done uh, uh, to you know to blacks um, because of you know that that stoking this 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 um, yeah and also it, theme but um yeah so he also would go on to, to create the movie Intolerance which I think um, based on my reading of it is kind of like a, a sort of uh, self defense I think and so I think that um, we're looking at how he was interpreting history and that as well uh, being involved in his own uh, kind of personal I guess mythology as far yeah. as him as an artist I think he's trying to I don't know, maybe defend his credibility or something, which is an interesting thing in which you get into uh, an artist's credibility, because I don't know how, how one would parse that, per se, um, about who ought to make art. Yeah, I think we see a very similar situation with um, both German art before and after the ascension of the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. you, know, like mm -hmm. you see it during the 20s with all the different things, and, and you see, you see which, some mythologizing in some art, but you also see the general um, sort of like Great Gatsby-ish sort yeah, of things. Yeah, and in, in, in Germany, film. a lot of the art is... It, was, what, what word am I looking for for the films? Um, is it expression? Uh, no, it's not a style. It's it was quite in it's in depth art. Okay, it wasn't like easy messages. It yeah. was complex but narratives. They ate it up. Sort of say, yeah, I know it was quite popular too. Now some of them were ha had bad messages, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of them were complex. Yeah. Big what narratives. is this? Uh, uh, the German cinema in the nineteen twenties. Yeah. Oh, yeah. German cinema in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, you know the stuff you watch. And there is a lot of <laughs> there is a lot of expressionism in that time. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I think Nicolas Cage is a good imitation of that. I, I, yeah, it's well, been said many times. Yeah. But what do you make of the Nazi propaganda films about like the, um, it's like the, like the murderous Jew or what's the, you know what I'm talking about? I, I know the film yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, you know the film I'm talking about. Like things like that where you have this like very, very stark glorification and connection to the past with Nazi ideology yeah. mm -hmm. and vilification of the, what is perceived the Jewish, mer the Jewish merchant class. Yeah. And it's just, it's one of these things that just, mm -hmm. Okay, if the Third Reich weren't defeated, I think those films would have been seen to have much larger impact. Yeah. You know, what about yeah. The, the thing is about those films, compared to the films that came earlier, they ha lack the complexity of narrative. They do. Now, is that a commentary? Mm -hmm. um, that fascists are less creative. <laughs> if, if probably, that, is, that is a general consensus among people. I don't know if that's... I don't, I, mean, that, I, don't, I don't want to give a hard answer on that, but what yeah. I will say is if you look at like uh, the NDSP... ND, NSDAP. NSDAP's uh, analysis of several of the films in Weimar Germany. Yes. They, would, they took a complex narrative and simplified it down to where it's totally inaccurate of what the story represented. Yeah. So would you say that the propensity so to... They did not yeah. understand the film yeah. in many cases. Yeah. So would you say the propensity of fascism to downplay... And I understand it's not about individual versus blah, 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 blah. Okay. Yeah. We get that. Would you say the propensity to create a unified identity within one nation, within one nationality specifically, in, in, the sense, in ethnic terms, would you say that that makes you want to simplify things in that way and not make them about individual stories. Because I, I don't, I've never seen the one that talks about the Jew, but I, I'm oh, pretty sure... Back to propaganda. Well, this we, is propaganda. This is, pro you yeah. know, birth of a nation, all that stuff. Yeah. We've, been, we've been in propaganda. Maybe we shouldn't be on this propaganda rabbit hole. Well, yeah. it's just, it's one of those things. I think I mean, we, we could go down the Merchant of Venice. We but, talked about the... Yeah, that would be a, a wild rabbit hole to go down. That would be yeah. a very wild. Um, the Brothers Grimm, for instance, we talked about in the oh, prior yeah. podcast. Um, there was one in particular, I believe that the plot was... Something of a um, uh, Pied Piper-esque uh, pipe or something along those lines in which it would force somebody to dance, I think. Um, and there, there was the story that they rewrote uh, had prior, priorly been about, like, I think some kids that were, like, tormenting this clergyman that, and making him dance in the briars. And they changed it out for a, a Jewish person um, who was, um, you know, uh, stereotyped in his, his occupation for, you know, being money-grubbing and, and things yeah. along those lines. Yeah. And so perpetuating that as part of their effort towards the kind of nationalism in their national mythos. Yeah. 
Now, I, I think it's very important to note that nationalism can exist in the absence of a perceived Jewish threat. I mean, yeah, that, that as yeah. an ideology that's, that's, that's is not intrinsically linked to you know an anti-Semitic uh, yeah. notion, but I, I, in I their particular yeah. case, I don't know if those if those things can be considered nationalistic. Uh, well, the their goal was to create a national mythos. That was the one of the reasons. What was why the story thinking. again exactly? It, so it was it, basically the the, the 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 big takeaway is the revisionist aspect in which they exchange yeah. you know a so person of the cloth else. for you know a yes. Jewish person you know doing yeah. you know it might not it might not be that things. deep of a change is what I I would I would say you know it's like making the people that is is tormented and it does weird things that people don't like a Jew is is pretty you know, it's pretty safe in the context of Europe and many that is true that is true it's not it's, as though it was and I on the one hand um I you know yeah I, I well there, it's not certainly to be far from defending it, it because yeah it could be that they are also looking out for you know the clergyman in yeah. this case and i don't know I, i'm in general it's an intellectually okay and many times in european history and, and not not as much in american history it, it's a very safe thing to do with your audience to make the bad guy a jew you know that is it has been done a lot of europe yeah oh, it's just here. we're not we're not saying that's a good thing of course yeah. but yeah that's this is know, what they did that is yeah that is i mean beautiful. as you said with the merchant of venice oh <laughs> i would read through that and it's there's a lot going on a there a lot indeed I don't um, think we'll get into this on this one. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's just, there's That's a lot of themes day. there. That's yeah. for another day. <laughs> so is Star Wars. But, but oh. I mean, it was, uh, it, we all started on a Shakespearean note. And, you know, I think we'll end up Coming back around to a Shakespearean note. Um, and I think for our closing question, the one thing that I might ask would be, um, what would you say as far as um, what, what aspects of, of history could be adapted into a piece of art that have been neglected as far as attention by um, some form of art. I don't know if I can answer this one. I can't really see. Well, no. we're, we're talking all sorts of oh. art. But that's it. it. Whether it be painting or movie. Maybe or... the verbal stories that are passed down, you know, like making those into like sort of pictures, you know, and yeah. things to tell the story. I know they did like, there's like a lot of tapestries with like a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Pictures depicting stories like through the years and it's like what they I, did and all that. I would say one character that would really you could make good like films out of it and even books would be the campaigns of charlemagne yeah. oh yeah that would be i mean einhardt is already it's already written like almost like this fictionalized account even though it talked about real stuff yeah it's written, yeah you yeah. could get some great like almost and like, there's another account like, by like Nacre medieval epics yeah and, and, and there's like a source material it's written in a fun way Mm -hmm. And if I may say, there are like tales, like um, tales of Charle uh, Solomon-like wisdom about Charlemagne by yeah. No Good Stamina, like these little anecdotes about what King Charlemagne did. Mm -hmm. And you know, he mm -hmm. talks about how he gets out of this one hairy situation with the Byzantine Emperor by you know the strict use of the language. You know, it's mm -hmm. like stuff like that. Yeah, I get what you mean. I feel like we could do. There could be a lot done. With, there could be a lot done with Charlemagne. There could be a lot yeah. done with a lot of those guys. Sure. Like I said, verbal tales for me, like you yeah. know, like yeah. ones that are just passed down. I have an idea, um, and I think I'll just go ahead and couch this since it has been an idea. I've been formulating for a while, and I'll encounter it as an ad. Um, so I, I think that one thing that would be interesting to adapt into a modern time would be the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think that obviously you would need to make it less epic in the drawn out sense and mm -hmm. formulate, you know, a single plot, uh, you know, storyline wise needs to be kind of does he have to yeah, make, make a modern opera with like hard <laughs> Dude, rock? Actually, yeah, like a modern opera. Be the, have some okay. parts in German, some parts in Latin, some <laughs> parts in ancient Sumerian. There yeah, you go. as well as a bit of Swahili. Why not? <laughs> no. Wait, Esperanto. What was the fourth one? Why Swahili? Esperanto, Why so all the world can understand it. Or right. <laughs> yeah, a or, very small group, or a very small across group the world. of people scattered throughout Europe, scattered throughout America, and yeah, probably other places in the world. Yeah. Africa. Um, you know, I know of some uh, African Esperantists. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, is interesting. Um, big takeaway is uh, that um, what what I, what I was thinking of would be a way of taking this very ancient story and turning it into one of a, a truly modern, but also not so truly modern uh, genre, and that would be turning into a superhero tale. I think that would be maybe. great. If anybody out there is an illustrator or a graphic designer, we need you. I want to pitch. A, a comic book, and uh, I think that uh, if you are willing to collaborate, email me at ClaytonJHester at Gmail. That might be opening me up to too much, but I don't care. It's, it's an email. It's out there for a purpose. Anyway. Yeah, that's your call. That's your call, man. That is your call. It's out there. If I honestly email you something creepy, it's not my fault. I didn't yeah, do it. In our defense, we that's are okay. friends with him, so therefore <laughs> I, he knows us. I, I pretty much have an open line of communication. You can make a fake email real quick. As, as Dude, a person, that, right as a person that wants to create things, do stuff, you know, you as a media mean, person, that I'm, I'm pretty much just... What about making a modern... 
That's make what... it. <laughs> no, 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 okay. no, here we go, here we go. But make it in the Aztec Empire. Ooh. Wait, wait, who's uh, Gilgamesh? I, I was trying to go with, like, you know, we could make a fictional character too for it, but um, sort of like, you know, like, make it. Like, there's the one Big Bang, because from what I remember, it's been a while since I've read the Epic of Gilgamesh. There's the. Gilgamesh Enkidu is, I believe. Enkidu is his buddy. Right? Yeah. Well, his, uh, his, his original his buddy, enemy is, turned buddy. Yeah, yeah, his enemy turned buddy from something. Because oh. he is originally a hero. Turned into a ruler. That's a villain. And that, then he becomes corrupt with his power. Yeah. And, then and then he needs to be challenged in. by uh, something, so the gods create Enkidu to sort of challenge him. And then they become best friends. They become best friends. And then Enkidu, if I remember correctly, dies. He at dies. One point, which is unfortunate. They find um, a giant. Esther tried to sed- Not Esther, but Ishtar. Yeah. Ishtar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ishtar tried uh, to seduce him at some point. Yeah. And he's like, no, all your all your boys die. Like, I'm not doing oh, yeah, I'm that's not going true. down yeah. that road. And then there's the giant, right? Yeah. Because he wants to Bull of Heaven. And then he goes, and then the serpent lies to him and eats the thing of immortality. And... Yeah. Anyway, after, wow, after Enkidu dies, he's after immortality. Because what a like, roller coaster. I don't want that. What a roller coaster. I don't want to die. So, kids, remember, Charlemagne miniseries and graphic novel. That would be a great thing to do. That would be a great one. Yeah. I think a comic book. book of... and, and let's remember a lesson we can all learn from Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. And that is to be merciful, magnanimous in victory. And kind to all people, <laughs> just in case that wasn't very clear. What a and you don't need to read to be ruler of Europe. You don't need to read, but you what? can establish universities. Wait, wait, that's there's there are multiple accounts. I know, but a lot like of some them that say some him. say that he couldn't read, some say that he couldn't write. It's a weird. Yes. Now, honestly, he probably could, but that it's just the most common yeah. thing. Yeah. You can help to establish univer- universities, though, even without you know. Yeah. You to yeah. Read. yeah. And you can pick men based on merits, not by their status with the nobility. That's just what Notker the Stammerer says. But then again, who's listening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing I would say. Is just that um, I think maybe a more interesting thing is instead of you know embedding a Sumerian tale into the Aztec um, Empire. into the Aztec Empire might be to take Aztec stories and see where you go with that. I think that they have some I think weird that, stories. I think that an epic set in the Aztec Empire may be something we have not seen that could that be very interesting. Instead of you know the usual suspects of going back to Rome or to medieval yeah. heroes, you know those sorts of things. So an Aztec epic. Is I one. think we could make a good epic about the you know would it be a giant conquistador war? period. Yep. You know, just because so, you can get War of the World stuff going on. So if you do, well, is, if, you yeah. do, if you do the Aztec Empire War, like the epic, who would it be, like, the point of view of, like, an Aztec? I want to be conquistador, the... but, you know, that's I mean, because hearing words. a bunch of Spanishmen, I San Diego, you know, I love it. You know, yeah, so that's like, what I want in life. That's from a video game. <laughs> to be honest, people can get the reference from wherever they want. Uh, but I think we can all agree that would be pretty nice to hear. It's like, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I need to read more about the, the kind of the human-centric stories of the Aztec Empire because There's some weird stuff. pretty much what I know is of uh, Sacrifice. There's well, that's true, too. I'm talking about historical. You're talking about myth, but you know what? That's all right. right. There's some weird stuff. I know about the Feathered Serpent, but uh, yeah, everyone, knows about that. everyone knows about the Feathered Serpent. Yeah. Uh, Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. What a boy. What a guy. <laughs> Doesn't everybody want their own Feathered Serpent? You know, I feel like I could go my whole life without one. That's called a dinosaur. <laughs> that's true. Uh, the dinosaurs have feathers, right? I mean, that's, that's what they're saying these days. That's what the people are saying. So, I mean, so is he basically worship a dinosaur? Oh. I, I think that's the real question. Listen for the Patreon exclusive. Yeah, let's discuss <laughs> this later. We discuss we'll discuss this later. Historical potential for dinosaurs being present. If dinosaurs be... in Central America, pyramids in Serbia, the whole nine yards. If if you the can... Earth hollow, well, the government won't let us know. <laughs> what are the UFOs from? I think Atlantis. Turtle shells. Uh, not the world turtle. <laughs> the world turtle. Are we on a big turtle? Oh, find out. You know what? That would be some weird Patreon stuff, but I might be down to discuss this. Um, I think that the the biggest takeaway is that we have not yet. Uh, founded a Patreon, but I want you all, if you're listening to this, down the road, we probably have a Patreon if you are listening to it several months after the fact. Yeah. Uh, so definitely check that out because there that will be a thing content. eventually yeah. because we we would like um, to help to, to help to grow the show. And yeah. To help to Find out what we really think about about, <laughs> about, about anything. About really. these, because we, we, and who knows, if you if you help to support us, we could also add a, um, a, a camera and we could all sit around and smoke cigars and talk about world turtles. Yes, I think Dude, that would be beautiful. Be and, and we can talk about the historical um, speculative history of whether or not dinosaurs have interacted with modern civilizations. <laughs> well, not modern civilizations, well, but... You know, um, not too far back. Right, exactly. The Aztecs. The Aztecs. I guess they did worship a dinosaur. I would say yes. But, oh, I'm sorry I spoiled it, guys. No, <laughs> no Don't worry, we will treat it. We, no could, we will treat it in full depth. We'll, we'll, actually, treat we'll actually debate it out a little bit. But I know which way I'm leaning already on this. <laughs> uh, I mean, if the History Channel can do a speculative history, which does need to become its own branch seen, in order for us to better quantify it. Have you seen the stuff that they did? The Jurassic Fight Club was the name of the series, where they have, like, these made-up ideas, like, they found oh, bones. Dinosaurs? Yeah, it's like dinosaur fighting dinosaurs. Like, I can say with 
90% certainty that this raptor attacked this dinosaur at this time. It's like, well, did you get that from the teeth that was embedded in the bone? Because that's pretty wise. But it's like, how do you know it didn't eat its dead body? Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, I think that's a good stopping point for yes. today, unless anybody has anything else to say. Speak now or for a week, hold your peace. Um, and in that case, I want to remind everybody to find yourself, know yourself, love yourself, get over yourself. Bye, everybody. Dinosaurs. <laughs>